So let's take our Bibles and turn in them. How many of you remember what book we were teaching? (laughs) Yeah, the book of Isaiah. Uh, Let's look at the 40th chapter. We're going to cut back just a little bit from where we were. We went through, I think, verse 12 last time, but I wanted to peel back for detail's sake to verse 9, actually probably the end of verse 8, but in then 9 into 17 uh, in a message that I've entitled, Behold Your God. And so with that, would you stand with me and, and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, it's just such an honor to be here, and we want to worship you and and just give honor and praise to you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you know the details of our lives, that you are interested in us, that you are in love with us, and that you, Lord Jesus, have given yourself to save us. And so, Lord, we want to give ear to you. We want to respond appropriately to you. We want to be encouraged and strengthened by you. So we give this time to you in Jesus' holy name. We pray that you'd speak. And everybody say, amen. amen. Have a seat there. You can bring me down just a fuzz. Jerry, be fine. Guys, let's remind ourselves of the frailty, the vulnerability, and the brevity of life. It's there at the end of verse 8, all flesh is as grass. And the grass withers and the flower fades. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't last long. James said that like this. He said, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. But the word of our God, verse 8, stands forever. What does that mean? It means that there's hope for you and for me because it's by his eternal word that we have been born again. Peter put it plainly. He said, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, that which is temporary or is somehow transitory, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And guys, this is the message the good news that we have been commissioned to share and to preach and to proclaim to those who are without hope, being without God in the world. I'm telling you, hopelessness is a horrible situation. And to be without hope, being without God in the world, it's there in verse 9, it's the second half of the verse, you who bring good news or good tidings, that's you. You have the hope of the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? It means good news, and it's abiding in you. And Isaiah says, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. And say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Now, what do you say we bring that right up to where we live? Say to the city of Joplin, behold, your God. Or whatever city you happen to live in, behold your God. Set your eyes upon him. Behold him. Study him. Meditate. Spend some time in examination of and meditation upon him. Behold your God. And if you'll allow me to address your attention uh, to verse 10, the first thing that he wants you to be assured of concerning your God is the fact that he is coming to rule and reign over all the earth. Somebody say, praise God. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord your God shall come with a strong hand 
and his arm shall rule for him. And behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. And so right away, our attention is drawn to the fact that this is not a reference to the first coming of the Christ. He references that in other places, in other passages. But this is a reference to the second coming, the return, the rule of the Messiah over all the earth. And by the way, I I trust that we would agree that this is clearly a messianic reference, yes? He says here, his arm shall rule, meaning that he, the said Messiah, will reign with resolute and absolute sovereign authority. The one Isaiah is speaking of here is one who has unwavering authority. Now, recall with me the words of Jesus. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, the one whom uh, Isaiah is speaking of here will reward those who have been faithful to him individually. It says right here in verse 10, you see, his reward is with him. It's in Matthew chapter 16 that we discover the declaration of Jesus when he said, for the son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will, notice, reward each according to his works. And again in Revelation chapter 22, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And Isaiah tells us concerning said Messiah here that his work is before him, personally. Well, what work specifically? Look with me at verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The work of feeding and leading tending to and taking care of the sheep of his hand. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. And guys, we're going to spend some time talking about this, but before I get too far into this and too far away from verse 9, can we just agree, having seen that this is a messianic passage, having seen the promises and the preaching and the proclamation, uh, the declaration of Jesus, that can, can we agree this is pointing conclusively, I mean concretely, to Jesus Christ? Okay, so back up to where we began. We, we brought it right up to where we live presently. It's there in verse 9. Say to the cities of, let's say, Joplin, Behold your God. Uh, verse 10, he says, The Lord God shall come. Now, I trust that you're maybe beginning to pick up on what I'm trying to put down here, and that is this. Even in your Old Testament, the Scripture clearly and candidly declares that the Messiah, the one who would rule and reign over all the earth sovereignly, supremely, who would bring his reward to those who serve him faithfully, uh, who would feed and, and lead the sheep of his hand tenderly, would himself personally be God. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm wanting you to see that from cover to cover, the Bible is clear that Jesus is God wrapped and robed in flesh and blood. 
That God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ so that as a man he could redeem mankind unto himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. In verse 11, and he will feed his flock like a shepherd. Guys, all throughout the scriptures, we discover that the Lord likes to identify with or liken himself to a shepherd, uh, one who would direct and protect, who would lead and, and feed the sheep of his hand. And we see various pictures of his role as a shepherd in other shepherds of the Bible. All the way back in the beginning with, in the book of Genesis with Abel, we see a picture of Jesus as the shepherd who would be slain one who would lose his life, whose blood would be shed for no fault of his own. You remember Joseph, and Joseph becomes a picture of Jesus, the persecuted and exalted shepherd, the one who would be rejected by his own initially, but then ultimately at his second appearing, he would be accepted and exalted and trusted Moses becomes a picture of Jesus, the shepherd who would lead his people out of bondage. And David becomes a picture of Jesus, the shepherd king. And then, of course, we get to passages in Scripture. We read along the lines in the Psalms of, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he makes me to lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside the still waters, and he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was for correction. There's the sheep, and he's beginning to stray. He's beginning to wander off course, and the shepherd would take his rod and kind of pop him back in line. The staff was for protection, to keep predatory animals or that which might seek to somehow harm the sheep out of the way and away, you see. Psalm 95, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He is the shepherd, you see. By the way, let's go ahead and just put this out there. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And we see here in verse 11, that he will feed his flock like a shepherd. Can we agree that this is the primary responsibility of a good shepherd, to feed his flock? What is the use in being a shepherd if your flock dies from starvation? You don't have a flock if you don't feed your flock. And so the sheep need to be nourished. It's, it's absolutely paramount. It's priority one, you see. Perhaps you recall, there they were, 
Jesus and his disciples. This is post-resurrection, and Jesus would meet up with them. Now, unbeknownst to them initially, they wouldn't recognize him at first, you see, but he would meet up with them, and, and he would call out to them because Peter had denied the Lord publicly, and so Jesus would restore him publicly, and there they were. They were sitting around the fire on the the, the seashore by, beside the Sea of Galilee. You guys recall this in your mind's eye, and he's cooking them some fish and, and such, and it's, it's time for breakfast. And, um, you know, I'm just going to be honest, fish for breakfast seems weird to me, but it's what they did. And there they were. It was early morning. Do you remember Peter jumped in the water and swam to the look as John recognized him? It's the Lord. He takes his robe off. He dives into the sea. He swims up. He pulls uh, you know, the, the load of fish up the, that's in the net. And the Lord just begins to minister to them. He begins to cook breakfast for them. And then he looks at Peter and he says to him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter looks at him and he says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And do you remember what he said? He said, feed my lambs. And then he looked at him again and he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, then tend my sheep. And he asks him a third time. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And of course, Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he said, then feed my sheep. He didn't say, Simon, do you love me? Well, then work miracles, perform signs and wonders. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Then heal the sick and raise the dead. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Well, then prophesy and speak in tongues. Now, those things would be a very real part of the ministry, but the priority, you see, of the shepherd is to feed the flock of God, which translates, teach God's people God's Word, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Observation, interpretation, application, the principles, the precepts, desire as newborn babes, the pure milk of the word that you might grow thereby. And it is my heart for you that you would have an accurate and a powerful practical working knowledge of the word of God that you would obtain, that you would maintain a biblical worldview, that you would be salt and light in a dark and decaying world, and that you would be well-equipped for the work of the ministry to which you have been called, that you lay hold of all of that for which Christ has laid hold of you, that you grab hold of the plow and you don't look back. Think about salt and light Salt, what does it do? It impacts, it influences directly that which it comes into contact with. It changes the substance, doesn't it? What does, what does light do? It changes the atmosphere, doesn't it? So the question is, are you having an impact? When you walk into a room, does the atmosphere shift? Something happens when you're a part of the mix. You're light. People change when they spend time with you your salt, you see. Think about that. Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20 calls him the great shepherd. And Peter called him the chief shepherd. 
And he will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Family, these things imply relationship, love, kindness, care, compassion, and tenderness. The weak aren't despised. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he he will not quench. But rather, the weak, the the bruised, the those who have just a spark of life left in them. He draws them in. He carries them in his bosom close to the heart. Listen, maybe that's a word for you here today. Someone here today feels like a weak sheep. You know, you feel bruised. It's like you're, there's just a little spark of life left in you. I know I felt that way. I'm so glad that the good shepherd does not despise the weak. He doesn't look at the bruise and go, eh, and just break it all together. He doesn't look at that little spark of life that's just barely hanging on and just go, just quench. What's the point? No. He draws them close. He, he cradles that individual next to his heart, that place of security and safety and loving kindness. But not only will the good shepherd feed and gently lead his flock, he'll also separate them from the goats and render judgment to the ungodly. Leave with me, if you will, Isaiah chapter 40. Turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 25. Go ahead, make your way over there, or click your way over there, whatever you do. (laughs) Matthew chapter 25, are you there? Come on now. You with me? Come on now. Somebody say amen. Okay. Well, I was waiting on you. I was waiting specifically for you. Anybody else need a second? Okay, we're all there. Matthew chapter 25. Let me draw your attention beginning in verse 31. Matthew chapter 25, if you need to turn the page, go ahead. Look at verse 31. And Jesus says here, and we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. As notice, a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. And in prison, you came to me. And the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, basically, when did we do all of these things? Now look at verse 40, and the king, and I paraphrase those few verses for you. And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. 
And then he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels or the demonic cohorts. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me. And in prison, you did not visit me. And then they're gonna answer and say, when did we not do these things? Verse 45, and he he will answer saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into, come on somebody, eternal life. Guys, we serve a gentle, loving, tender, yet holy and righteous God. What a great example for every husband, every father out there. Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Uphold righteousness. Be strong, yet be a model of tenderness and gentleness and love and compassion to your bride and to your children, you see. Now look at verse 12. We're back in Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, uh, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Let's recall the initial exhortation, behold your God, right? There are things, uh, the characteristics about God that Isaiah wants us to think about and meditate on, Right? He says, behold your God. And he drew our attention to the absolute, resolute authority, the fact that God maintains unyielding total sovereignty, yet he shepherds us intimately, personally, lovingly, and tenderly. Here we're being drawn to consider his overwhelming, all-encompassing, omnipotent majesty. We're being challenged to consider creation in all its magnitude, in all its enormity, yet realize that it's nothing in comparison to God's omnipotent majesty. And guys, we want to be clear here. We we understand the Bible teaches that God is spirit. And in so saying, what we're seeking to communicate is that he doesn't have a body per se in the sense of hands and feet as we do. Those are terms, it's a fancy term called an anthropomorphism or something like that. And essentially what it means is uh, attaching a human attribute, if you will, to uh, God the Father uh, so that we can kind of understand his character or or his attributes, if you will. Uh, But The point that Isaiah is making is that we should stand in awe of the power and the might and the majesty of God, yes? When we think of the enormity of the oceans of the earth, uh, we read here that God determined their limits by the hollow of his hand. He measured the heavens in a span. Family, I want you to think of the vastness of the heavens. Do you realize, many of you, this may just be a rehearsal of of information for you, but do you realize 
that the sun is, it's a medium-sized star, yes? And yet it's, it's 93 million miles away from the earth. Now the sun is 100 times larger than the earth. What that means is you could stretch the earth side by side, put the, put the earth side by side across the sun 100 times. Okay, uh, pertaining to volume, you could place 1.3 million Earths inside the sun. But the sun's just a medium-sized star. There's, let's jump on out there to Betelgeuse. If you're not Betelgeuse, that's a different thing. Some of you know who that is. Um, but Betelgeuse, you can fit, listen to this, over 1 million suns, each containing 1.3 million Earths inside of Betelgeuse. And that's a pretty big star, would you agree? But then there's the star called U.Y. Scooty, which is kind of a weird name, but that's the name. Listen to this. You can fit 430 million suns, each containing 1.3 million Earths, inside U.Y. Scooty. Now, let me save you the math. You could place the volume of 6 quadrillion, 489 trillion Earths inside U.Y. Scooty. Now, guys, those are numbers that are beyond our comprehension. We live in this little neck of the woods of the known universe called the Milky Way galaxy. It's about 100,000 light years across. What that means is that if you could travel at the speed of light, which for those of you who are into it means 186,000 miles per second, if you could travel at the speed of 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100, approximately 100,000 years to go from one side of the Milky Way galaxy to the other side of the Milky Way galaxy. And there are, to the best of our ability to calculate, about 100 billion stars contained in our galaxy. Now, we're only one of 100, maybe 200 or more billion galaxies, guys. And, and each galaxy contains billions and billions of stars. And yet the Bible declares he, that is God, counts the number of stars. He calls them all by name. Think about that. Not only does God know the exact amount of stars there are in the universe, he has a name for each individual one of them. It causes us to consider the words of David when he said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? The omnipotent majesty of our God he measures the heaven with a span. Calculates the dust of the earth in a measure. Ladies and gentlemen, can I be totally honest with you? I don't even know the amount of dust in my home. I know it's quite a bit, though my wife does a wonderful job. Keeping, I would never <laughs> seek to imply anything other than that. Happy anniversary, babe. I love you more than life. <laughs> but, but I don't know the amount of dust in my home, much less all the earth. The, 
Bible says here, he weighs the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Guys, God is the one who created the universe and placed it all, the idea here is in perfect balance. He weighed it, he measured it, he calculated it. He didn't need any advice. He didn't seek any counsel from me. Did he seek counsel from you? You say, hey, how many stars do you think I should go ahead and, and toss out there? How, how do you think I should, what, how, should I, how far should I allow the sea to, 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 to go before I say that's as far as you can go and no more? I mean, how much water should I put on the earth versus land mass? How should I work this whole gravity thing out? You know, uh, should I suspend the earth on, on the back of uh, Atlas, on a turtle, on an elephant? Or what should, how, should I, how would you like me to handle that? Did he ask you any of that? He didn't ask me. Look at verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Can we be honest here? We all have. We, at least we've tried. Can we go that far? We've all tried. Every time we pray, every time I, I say, God, would you fill in the blank? Or God, I'm asking you to, you, God, really need to. We're seeking to direct the spirit of the Lord. We try to counsel God. Give him advice as though we know what really needs to happen. After all, I mean, God's got a lot going on. I mean, we just talked about how vast the heavens are and all the things he's holding in balance and this and that. And, you know, there's billions and billions of people on the earth and each one of them have details happening in their lives and he just may not be aware of all the details happening in real time in my life. Now, we'd never say that out loud. Perhaps we'd never really even believe it even if it were a fleeting thought that passed through our minds. But the way that we behave and direct our prayers sometimes seem to imply that. But what do we see here? If verse 12 brings into focus for us the omnipotence of God, then verse 13 and 14 draws our attention to the omniscience of God, his unending wisdom and knowledge without measure. And this is just where you write it down so you can read it later, but I highly encourage you to write it down here and maybe in the margin of your Bible. It's a great place to reference, but Job chapters 38 and 39. Write it down, read it later. You'll thank me that you did. Maybe not personally, but in your mind, you'll be like, man, I'm glad I read that. What's the take home from this section of scripture? Guys, the question to consider isn't how big are our problems? but rather how big is our God? You understand? We get the feeling here that Isaiah is seeking to encourage his reader in this way. If God is above and beyond all of creation, if there is no one like him, no one even beside him, if he is infinite in power and might, infinite in wisdom and knowledge, then what part of your problem is he unable to handle? Someone has described circumstances as those nasty things you see when you get your eyes off God. Come on, somebody. That's good. That's real good. It's not mine. 
so I can say that. Quick question. Is there anything that you've ever seen that God has never seen? Think about it. Is there anything that you've ever seen that God has never seen? Of course there is. You say, wait, what? You're equal. God has never seen his equal. He alone is worthy of all honor, all glory, all blessing, and all power. How many times we've sought to show God the way of understanding. Those of you who are parents, have you ever had your child, say they're four or five, and uh, they try to help you assemble like maybe a toy or something? Perhaps there you are on Christmas morning and, you know, you've done it, you know what you're doing, but man, they insist on showing you how. And truth be told, they hinder you more than they help you, but you kind of allow them to direct you here and there. And I think sometimes we're kind of like that with God. You know, he knows what he's doing, but we insist on him trying things our way, you know, as if we can teach him something. Listen to me, we don't counsel God. God counsels us. And he does so through the principles and precepts of his word. Psalm 119, your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Now, guys, don't misunderstand me with all that. There's nothing wrong with pouring our heart out before the Lord, taking our problems to the Lord. The Bible exhorts us, encourages us to do just that. Cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard or garrison your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we thank God for that, don't we? But let's not think that we're informing him of something he didn't already know. And yes, again, we bring our requests, we bring our petitions, but let's remember that our Heavenly Father knows best, and He knows the right thing to do. So cast your care upon Him, bring your petitions to Him, but nevertheless, not my will, right? Your will be done. Now, verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop, or uh, are as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon, or Lebanon, is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. I'm going to give you one more scripture. It's Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in heaven, in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision. Guys, The military might of the nations is something that really impresses us, isn't it? I mean, if we be honest, it's impressive. I'll I'll never forget my wife and I, I don't know if it was an anniversary, probably. There we were, we were in our early 20s and um, we went to this 4th of July type 
no, it wouldn't have been our anniversary because it's 4th of July. Forgive me. I know when our anniversary is today. It's today. <laughs> but we went to this 4th of July, like freedom type festival uh, there in St. Louis. And there we were. We were by the arch. The arch is overhead. The Mississippi River's flowing by. There's thousands of people uh, lining the shore and in the park. And there's bands playing, and there's different things happening, and all the festivities are going, and suddenly this Harrier jet just begins to fly in, and it's going real slow, and it begins to hover, comes to a stop, and it begins to hover right over the Mississippi River, and it's literally like right in front of us. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I hope he doesn't get cleared to go hot here. You know what I'm saying? It's like green light, you're cleared to engage. I'm just thinking of all the, every movie I've ever seen and everything, but the, he starts to lower down. The water begins to spray. The engine is roaring. It's turbines or whatever they're called. Uh, you know, He begins to turn them down. The plane flies up. The water sprays, and he takes back off, and I'm just telling you guys, the feeling of raw power was overwhelming. And I told my wife, you know, I'm going to sleep a lot easier tonight knowing that those things are out there protecting this nation. And it's just one in a sea of who knows how many there are at the ready, right? My point being that the power of the nations can be an awesome thing to behold. Now follow me. Behold your God. The nations, the nations, not just our nation, every nation on earth combined are as a drop in a bucket counted as the small dust on scales. He's saying they're nothing compared to the greatness and the glory of our God. Who's closing? All right, let's go. You know, in ancient marketplaces, because he says here, uh, let me just find it for you. Yeah, they're counted in verse 15 as the small dust on the scales. In ancient marketplaces, before you bought, there, there you are, you're at the market, and maybe you're going to buy a pound of wheat or a pound of flour, whatever the case may be. And the merchant, before he would sell it to you, before he would put the merchandise on the scale in front of you, he would always, he would blow the dust off the scale. It's kind of inconsequential, but the idea is that he wanted you to know that you were getting a true measure, that you're not paying for something that you're not buying. You're not buying dust here. Uh, You're buying the product in fullness that you uh, have set before him. And Isaiah tells us here that the nations are like the dust on the scales to God, insignificant, inconsequential compared to his might. Are you following me? All the wood of Lebanon, insufficient to make an altar. All the animals of its forest aren't enough to to, to be a burnt offering for, for which he is. In other words, the best that man can provide is not enough to satisfy the worth and the honor and the glory of God. All the trees of Lebanon aren't enough to create a burnt offering. You could put every animal in the forest on the altar. It's not enough. The nations before him are as nothing and counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. The pomp and the pride of the godless nations of this world is an offense to the holiness and righteousness of God. 
And yet for all that, listen to me, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we, you and me, should be called children of God. Oh, how we should humble our hearts before the living God. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's humble our hearts before the Lord. Even now. God, we take this time to humble our hearts before you as we behold you, oh God. God, show us your glory. God, pour your spirit out upon us. Empower, enable, embolden us to be salt and light in this contaminated culture to which you've called us, God. And I pray that we would run the race to win. And may we finish well. May we be good and faithful servants unto our good, our great, to the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. God, we love you so much. And we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And so, Lord, I want to pray for every heart that's here today, Lord. Maybe there's a heart that's in need of help, in need of healing, in need of hope, feeling weak, bruised, battered, just a little life, just hanging on. They're just hanging on. And I pray today, Lord, that you would just scoop them up, cradle them next to your heart. And I just want to pray, Lord, that if anyone's here and they don't know you, that you might make yourself real to them even now. We thank you, Lord, that you draw us near to yourself. And listen, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. All things are made new. Today we spoke of the omnipotent power and majesty of God. God has the power to make you new. You can be what the Bible says, born again as by the Spirit of God. And God has made it so easy. We like to say that he paid the debt he didn't owe because we owed the debt we couldn't pay. And he's made it so easy. Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross. He shed his blood for the remission, the taking away, the removal, if you will, of, of your sin. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. You ask me, how does that happen? I don't know. But God has declared it so. 
And so now he says, look, if you'll just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, somehow and in some way he will, he will exchange your sin for his righteousness. How's that sound? Old things will pass away and all things become new. Maybe everyone here knows the Lord, loves the Lord. That's great. But I just want to take a second and say, you know what? Maybe you're here with a friend. Maybe you're here with family. Maybe you just showed up of your own volition. You don't know. You're just like, man, something's not working in my life. I need, I need something different. I'm going to try church. I don't know. And here you are. And God is knocking on the door of your heart. Well, I'm just going to tell you, if you'll open it, he'll come in. And he'll make you brand new. You'll leave here different than you walked in because you cannot have an encounter with the living God and not be different, made new. So if that's you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just boldly. Just tell them, say, look, I need Christ to come into my life. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I need to be made new. This ain't working out for me. Would you pray for me, Pastor? I'd be glad to pray for you. God bless you. I see you. You can put your hand back down. Anyone else? Today's a day of salvation for you. If you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Who can I pray for? God bless you too. Come on. Don't resist. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's by grace we're saved through faith. Anyone else? God bless you, man. Look. You know, normally I would resist, I would hesitate because I, guys, here's the thing. I don't want you to feel like I'm trying to manipulate you emotionally. Okay. I'm not, but I'm, I'm trying to be genuine with you. Truly. And so uh, I'm not one of those guys who gets my validation from people responding to an altar call or whatever. It's just, it's between you and the Lord. But I do want to say, if you do know the Lord, and sometimes it's harder for you, isn't it, believer? It's harder for me to humble ourselves and say, you know what, man? I, things aren't as they should be in my life. I'm that guy. I'm that gal. I'm that weak one. I'm that bruised one. I'm that, I'm that one that's just barely hanging on, man, and something needs to change. And, I, and I, I'd love to pray for you. Are you willing to, to say, you know what, that's me. God bless you and you, and God bless you too. God bless you and you, you and you and you. God bless all of you. God bless you and you. But guys, this is why we're here, you know? The church isn't a, <laughs> like a country club for the, <laughs> the righteous, those that have all their act together. It's a hospital for for the struggling, for the sinner, for the, yeah, we. I mean, yes, we we we're taken from sinner to saint, but man, we struggle, don't we? It's day to day, and so, Father, you've seen every heart, every hand, and God, I want to pray for those who just said, you know what, I need, I need you, Jesus, I need you to, 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 to save me. And I thank you, Lord, for that picture we have in the gospel where Peter was sinking and he just cried out, Lord, save me, and immediately you were there and you caught him and you lifted him up. And so if you were saying, you know what, I need Christ to come into my life, I just want to encourage you. Just pray. You can pray out loud. You don't have to. God hears your heart. You know, we believe 
with our heart, we confess with our mouth. What that means is that your mouth is going to tell on you. You can't, there's no closet Christian. Your conversation will change. But the Bible declares we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. If we'll confess it, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So wherever you're at, whatever's happening in your heart, you need Christ to come into your life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, God, I believe on your son. Jesus, I believe on you now. And and Lord, I am a sinner. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. To come into my heart. To cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And make me new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to live for you from this day forward all my days. That I would be salt and light in the culture to which you've called me. And Father, I pray for every heart that it was extended. Lord, I know when a hand is, is extended for me to see, really a heart is opened for you to see. And so Lord, I just pray for, for the weak Lord, those of us who are bruised, uh, Lord, who've maybe had a rough patch, who just need you to cradle us and connect us, Lord, that place of safety and security, of love. and Lord, just, just pull us into your heart. Give us ears to hear you, that you would, Lord, help us to respond appropriately to you. Lord, that we would repent of our sin, remember from where we've fallen, and repeat those first works, Lord. That you might be glorified in our lives. Pour your spirit out upon us. And we thank you, God, for the work that you're doing among us. And we give you praise in Jesus' holy name.